To me, one of the uh, severe problems right now is the question of how to get people to pay attention to something that happened that long ago. Uh, if John Kennedy were alive today, he'd be 106 years old. We thought of him, of course, in those days as a very young president. But the point is, a lot of time has passed. And um, I'm heartened by the fact that people still care about it. But I also realize I can't imagine if I were 20 years old or even 30 years old, what it would mean to me. I wasn't alive when Kennedy was. I This stuff was in a high school history textbook at best. So I do think there's a challenge that we have today that's how to wake people up to the fact that it matters. What do you think that the like the community has made it like this? The amount of conspiracy theories that are out there, and a lot of them I don't agree with, but I do believe conspiracy, and I think there's ample evidence to prove conspiracy. But there's a lot of like back and forth fighting. And I mean, even now with the documents and when those documents to be released, I mean, the government at this point is just saying they can think Gary was telling me off air that they could just for everybody listening welcome to out of the blank podcast we kind of just kicked right into this i'm with two gary so it's going to be difficult for you if you're just listening and not watching but he was telling me off air that desanitized documents apparently or sanitized documents is that what you're saying yeah yeah jefferson morley gary yesterday posted on his uh jfk facts site that the um that nara is cooperating with the CIA, FBI, uh, Secret Service, ONI, you name it, to uh, do away with the assassin, the ARRB directive to release documents. And he's got a paywall, so you can't get further than his opening comments about the fact that this is happening. And uh, they're they're doing a and run around the directive that they release all documents and neutralizing the directive. And, you know, I, I can believe that because when they released the last documents, pretty quickly I sent an email to both the Kennedy Library in Boston and to NARA, and I said, Is, can you tell me if the file that I found in 2003 at NARA that turned out to be empty is has been released. What was supposed to be in the file were the Secret Service records from 2000 uh, from 1963 during Kennedy's conservation tour, and when I was there in 03 to look at them. I was out there for a teacher's convention and had a few hours after it was over to, to go in and register and get my mugshot taken. And I asked for <clears throat> Secret Service records from September 24, 5, 6, 7, 8, conservation tour that Kennedy was on. And the guy at NARA came back and said, um, can't find anything. They couldn't even find the file that had the piece of paper in that said withdrawn for national security reasons. Two boxes withdrawn, one piece of paper. So uh, when boss, when the library in Boston couldn't find anything, I went back to the guy at NARA and said, Boston doesn't have anything either. So, you know, can you do anything else with this? And he said, well, I'll send it up to my, uh, 
my manager. Well, I never heard back. This is two months ago now. So my point is that if Morley's contention that the records are being systematically uh, uh, done away with, then that's what I experienced, I guess. Could very well be. Because there's no way they wouldn't find those boxes with those dates. I mean, if I could walk in there in 2003 and ask for them and they had them in two minutes and now they can't find anything. Well, I think one thing to remember, uh, the um, we know that there are many items that never made it into any files uh, because we know of the existence of things that aren't there, that were sent there, that were there. Secondly, we know that some of the files had disappeared right off the bat. The first document I sought in the National Archives was a document which contained all the photos of Lee Harvey Oswald, which were in evidence. And I thought it would be really helpful in talking to witnesses if you could show them various photos of him because he looks different in different ones. That was gone. It was empty. It was gone. And, and I could go through a whole long list of things that weren't there. And even things in related that aren't part of the assassination record, for example, Pierre Salinger's personal files contained a copy of the tape of messages sent to LBJ, the Secret Service in Air Force One flying back to Washington uh, the afternoon of the assassination. Uh, and he authorized access to that by Ben Salandria and myself. The point is that when uh, we asked for it, they, they it was gone, didn't exist anymore. And so first of all, beyond the fact that most key things are probably never recorded and never in files. We know that files began disappearing right away. The second thing is without knowing context and background, in many cases, you can find something and not know what it means, not have any idea because of how it's misdescribed. The Miami plot is a good example, uh, which was in the files, but you couldn't have realized it was a real thing that was actually tape recorded. There's no mention in there of the fact the FBI had a, a hidden tape recorder in a hotel room and taped what these guys were saying. This wasn't just what somebody remembered. Uh, and then last but not least, um, the ability these days to fake something, to either create something that doesn't exist or uh, to alter something that does exist is incredibly good. I mean, I, I'm flabbergasted at how authentic something can look. It can be aged, it can look, like it's something that's 60 years old and it isn't. So as a matter of fact, all of the record stuff has severe limitations as to its value and likelihood of answer to the who killed the president is not in those files. Yeah. Well, the, the files that I was looking for <clears throat> didn't disappear until 95 when, and I spent some time with Tunheim discussing it and, uh, I, you know, I said, uh, what, what do you know? And he says, well, when I talked to the Secret Service during the ARRB time, 94 to 98, he said it was, he thought 95, or I think he said 95, that he went to the Secret Service and said, where are the trip files, Secret Service trip files for the conservation tour in, in September of 63? He said their response was, oh, uh, we shredded those two weeks ago, 
meaning in 1995. So shredded is different than withdrawn. And the message in the box on a single sheet of paper was withdrawn for national security reasons as of 95. And I was there in 03. So in those eight years or less, because he may have gotten that response from them in 98 about shredding, um, you know, that's, and, and now they can't even find boxes with those dates on them much less the piece of paper inside that said withdrawn for national security reasons. So, yeah, I agree with you, Gary, that that's probably the case with a huge amount of stuff. Do you think it's different this time? Like we got Robert Kennedy, the running for president, and we got a bunch of at least more eyes. It seems like, I don't know if it's just because my involvement within the year that I've noticed it. I mean, I was never interested. I, mean, I was interested in the topic from like high school, but I never really got invested into it as much as I am now over the past year. And I, maybe I'm picking up like a, the anniversary when that date rolled up. It was like a big event for me and I'm sure of a lot of researchers. But if I wasn't interested in JFK, would I really pay attention to the event or the anniversary that's coming up? And then even this one that's going to be coming up as well, too. So is it just the time of everything going on now? Do you think the public has more of an interest into it? It seems like my generation, I'm getting, getting my friends interested into it and a lot more people have been, uh, I guess, you know, at work or whatever that I talk to seem interested by the stuff that I'm putting out when it comes to content, the information you guys are passing on to me. So, I mean, is it the public? Is it uh, Robert Kennedy running for president that all this is making things seem a little bit tighter and like we might get closer to an answer that they might be destroying files? I mean, I've even seen statements that the government can just change the qualifications for the JFK Act and say we don't have to put a time limit on these things. I mean, they're way past it now. So it's like behind closed doors, they might not have to say it, but they're doing it. And now they're just openly saying we don't have to give you the files at this point. So it's like, what do you do there? Well, somebody has a concern about renewed interest. So there is some renewed interest, but certainly you see a whole bunch of people coming out uh, prior to the anniversary saying uh, trying to speak to it again and trash the work of the critics and so forth. So somebody's watching and, and concerned, but uh, the question is, is the broader public for whom Cuban Missile Crisis and who JFK was and the Vietnam War, all those things are not memories. Those are things they've read about to a limited degree when they took high school history. And yeah, I think I, that's, I, that's a challenge. I think a positive um, dynamic that is going on, um, 10,000 baby boomers retire every day, not every week, but every day. That's 400 a day in Minnesota. So if they're retiring, they're old enough to have been alive in their teens, in their twenties, um, and and they've been working all their life. They may not have had any time to, uh, not a lot of extra time to to dig like you and I, Gary, that had some more direct experience. And now, a percentage of those ten thousand a day, let's say it's one percent, a hundred people a day, are curious about what happened in 63. I mean, I'm not, I don't know that. I'm just saying that 
statistically, it seems to be significant. And when you see all of the interaction on the internet with all these sites, whether it's in London or Australia, here's a book by a guy named Greg Parker. In Western Australia, not just our Australia, but Western Australia, way out there. He's been on here three times. Has he? Hmm. He's a good guy. Huh? Yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. He's done great research. Yeah. And so, you know, to the, if, when you go into the bookstore or the library at this sixth floor museum, right inside the, the steps that um, uh, Billy Lovelady or Oswald, whichever one you think it was, was standing, you walk in those doors, go to the left about 10 feet, and here's a library with a glass wall with all 2,000 books that have been published. And they will record you if you were in Dealey Plaza or have a story from that day. And so they've got hundreds of recordings. They, they called me up once I got home. I was there and I, they said, well, you know, we'll call you back in Minnesota and we'll record it, which they did. But it dawns on me more and more often that 2,000 books, and yet you go into a Barnes & Noble and you'll really have to dig for the few that they have on the racks. And most of them are anti-conspiracy. And well, there's 2000 books that don't see the light of day because most of them are published in runs of 2000. They never, you have to find them on the internet by chance. They're never, advertised in the mainstream publishers uh, uh, material and so it, it, you know it's kind of a uh, it took care of itself the self-censorship because the books were never widely distributed except for a few i mean james douglas book the kennedy assassination uh, or what was the subtitle i mean that probably is a bestseller of sorts but it's um just a case of the system almost having an inner dynamic that censors itself, that protects the, let's say the 1% is who did the assassination. It's almost like their dynamic in uh, because they own 60% of the country's assets. It's almost like the system has a life of its own and, and censors anything that's going to challenge it. Well, the bottom line uh, and one answer to all this from the beginning and through the present has been that fundamentally the mainstream media never really took this up except to defend the report. That's the bottom line. And that's still the case, largely. Very few reporters you can name who actually looked at it. And, you know, Richard Dudman, St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I mean, there were a few, but not very many. And uh, uh that's a bottom line and i think it's very hard if the books aren't getting looked at by the media if you're not in fact discussing any of these things and rarely are they discussed and if as i think you're quite correct uh, a bunch of anti uh warren report critic books get good visibility from time to time um 
it's not a level playing field, never has been. And that's that's the challenge. And the second thing is, I think the most threatening thing about the assassination is not who did it, but it's how is it possible for the media to do such a big job of not looking at it and of passing by and saying even 60 years later, no big deal. And it's not an issue. And that's that's the killer. Again, uh, remembering uh, December issue of Life magazine that showed the Zap Bruder film that had to be pulled off the presses, redone, sent back out. That should have been a scandal, but almost nobody knows about it. But the fact that some subscribers got a different version of the assassination story and different photos from the Zap Bruder film than everybody else did. Um, and there are other examples like that where somebody put something out, even in defense of the commission, and it got stomped away. And the public has absolutely no idea that stories changed or that, in fact, a whole big story never appeared. The average person doesn't know things about the autopsy and some of the stuff that screams out to us, but the average person has no idea. Well, the base fact is your media being in line with your government on that. I mean, it makes sense. It's from a strategic standpoint, if you're the government, you don't want any giant scandals or any issues, especially like even with that Vietnam reporting and many other, other things. They had a photo of the Vietnam girl that was burned, and they had cropped the soldier out who was standing on the left. And it has a different impact in the photo. It's much like if you look at Robert Kennedy um, when he's shot and they have him laying on the ground. Just the little clip, the little clip on tie that's off to the in the corner that's just gone. They crop that out on the original cover. It's just Robert Kennedy. They don't show the clip on tie. Whether that's protecting a person's reputation or not, I understand. But it makes sense when you really start talking about the things that they can really take out of photos or impact to pitch a story. And it goes into the stereotype today of narratives like fear and all these other things that people always out there. I go, well, just take it back a little bit farther. I've been through, and I want to ask you guys this about the media relationship back between with the Kennedy assassination, the media and the government, because I'm looking through documents of like, we're going to have a meeting with all these Life and Time magazine editors. And there's like 13 names that are listed that are either the vice president or the president of that corporation or something like that, which I'm like, I don't know what that's about because they don't list in the document what the meeting was about, but that's your government now meeting with these guys to have a dinner or whatever type of meeting. And then you go into – they also are critical about an article that came out about Richard Helms. Like what do we do? Someone needs to talk to this guy about the stuff that they're reporting on. So they were – media was complying and covering the nation's secrets for good to make sure it doesn't go to what they would deem as their enemies. But also when you look at the issues with the JFK assassination, you see the guideline or the goalpost move, and they started covering things that are supposed to be accurate truths and facts, witnesses that wanted to tell their story that were either shamed or not picked up by media sources, where you go, this is what happens when you let them – when they, they sales pitch it right. They say, we don't want the nation's secrets going out to the world, so we need to understand this is national security. Well, that national security now has become anything that can be national security to them, which means a document, any type of thing that could really help you understand 63 better. And now it's been so difficult to get those. So where I ask you guys about the media relationship, how deep do you think it goes? Do you think everyone's just in this one giant thing of it? Or do you think it's more incentive not to go against the party line in certain aspects like this, where you would think conspiracy sells? 
we have plenty of books about murder and a bunch of stuff. Well, why aren't you picking up the Kennedy conspiracy stuff? Why isn't anybody talking about this on television? Why does Tucker Carlson have to be like the first guy in 60 years to go and say it on national television to everybody? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, I did some research on Life magazine because the guy that edited 600 consecutive issues from 39 until 63, and then he became editor after being manager, Edward K. Thompson. Um, he, in his autobiography, he says nothing about Kennedy. And here, he's the one that was in control of the backyard photo and Rankin back in 60, in the spring of 64, sends him a message saying, you will turn over the original photo from the backyard, Oswald's backyard photo. And Rankin had to ask him four times. And finally, the fourth time, he says, you have it to us by 4.30, April 15th. I forget the exact date. And uh, Thompson coughed it up. And I've seen the memo that that Rankin requested the document or the, the photo. And uh, Thompson says, oh, I, I, I touched up the shoulder a little bit and I touched it up around the butt of the rifle and I touched it up around his leg. And, you know, it's a limited hangout. Everybody says, well, you know, um, they just have to do that to make a photo presentable for the cover of Life magazine. Well, sure. But at the same time, this guy, Edward K. Thompson, um, in his autobiography, then says nothing about the assassination or about Kennedy. Um, he, uh, what he does say is that his office was right next to Henry Luce in the Time Life building. And he said, you know, Henry tells me that uh, he really believes in fascism. And I think I do too. Well, you know, that's not news for anybody that's looked at loose at all because his wife was the ambassador to Mussolini's fascist government and Thompson lived there with her while she was that and uh, you know then his secretary and his auto, or his wife told me that his secretary destroyed all of his papers and all, all he said in response was well I can remember most of it I don't need them well <laughs> kind of a subdued response. Um, there was probably stuff in there that he'd, he'd rather not have to sift through to censor. But I mean, there's there's that kind of stuff that the media was up to their neck in. And, uh, you know, Life Magazine kind of went away, but they did a lot of damage. I, I told uh, um, Jefferson Morley, a couple of years ago, he's from Minneapolis, and I met with him in a coffee shop in South Minneapolis, and I, I described a lot of what I just said to you about this Edward K. Thompson, and uh, and I basically said, you know, it sure seems like Life Magazine was a front for the CIA, and I was kind of surprised. I mean, obviously, you can't just say that and not have good proof but there's lots of circumstantial evidence 
Well, look, it's not a conspiracy that in city planning, they put a bar right next to a Taco Bell or Taco Bell next to a bar. That's just smart strategy. So it makes sense that your government would have a their own newspaper magazine. I mean, we know they created the Rational Observer, which was a fake magazine loaded up on college campuses that was basically saying anti anti Vietnam stuff. So, I mean, that's real. Well, and we know we know right now that uh, in terms of racial issues and in terms of Vietnam War, there were large-scale projects within FBI and CIA to basically alter the picture, to create news, to wipe news out, and to wipe people out. And that's all pretty well documented now. We know about it. I don't know that the average person does, but it's certainly factually easy to show. But just a quick look at the media. My own experience, I worked with the CBS special um, and uh, Robert Richter, the associate producer, was the person I worked with, uh, came to us near the time when they were going to air it and said, look, I got to tell you something, guys. I know that I promised you honesty and objectivity. It's the only reason we worked with them. He said, well, we're coming out for the commission. I said, how, how can you do that? Your own research blew away a whole bunch of stuff. He said, well, I'm really sorry. I, he said, I... This is not my doing. I have a simple choice. I either never again get to work in journalism in this country or maybe anywhere, uh, and my family doesn't have any money, or um, I go along with it and I try to somehow make it up later. And I believe that was an honest statement. I think this guy simply said, there is no way, given what's coming down from above, that we can tell the story as we know it. And in many cases with media, what I saw was people backing off, people very excited and interested, pulling the stuff together, getting ready to write, and all of a sudden, sort of like the phone goes dead, the story goes dead, you can hear it in their voices, they, they, they shift. And I think the issue is that as soon as somebody up above hears it, the ball game changes. And I had a, I gave a, a on the, um, 15th anniversary of the assassination, I was giving a, a talk at uh, uh, University of Minnesota uh, campus, in, uh, campus in Marshall, way out west. And a, a, a TV station in Alexandria talked me into spending my dinner hour going there because they were going to cover the fact that the talk was going to take place. And they were very hostile and not unfriendly, but I went ahead and I got them to load a bunch of my slides in one camera. So I put on a mini show. Well, at the end of it, the the mood had changed dramatically. And the, the manager of the station came up and said, my God, he said, this is unreal. And he said, how could American journalists, how could any self-respecting journalist not tell the story? We're going to have you back and we're going to do a special on this. Well, two days later, I learned that the an interview with me never even showed. And so I called them. The student said, could you find out? I said, well, I'll call it up. And uh, they said, uh, really sorry. I thought I was going to hear some song and dance that the, the film was ruined or something, or there was an electronic problem. Not at all. He just said, I'm really sorry. You know, uh, the higher up said it was too controversial. So I said, on American soil, 15 years after the death of a president, we can't talk about it in this small station. Pardon me, sir, but it's a small station in Alexandria that, that, the, we can't do that. And I just said, you remember just two nights ago when you you were blown away and said, how could any self-respecting journalist or newsman 
go along with this? And I said, I don't know. And I said, well, now you know the answer to that question, because I still don't know what happened to you. <laughs> but I, this is the kinds of experiences many critics have had over the years. Um, and it's not a single big conspiracy. Nobody sits down and meets and plans it out. But when events occur that have to do with exposure of what somebody views as key material, things kick in, somebody calls somebody, and somebody decides that either their career or their salary ain't worth it. Um, and they feel they'll make up for it somehow in the future, which of course they can never do. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, Robbie, you were saying initially, what is it about um, conspiracy that is real, unreal, or whatever? And um, I, I find it curious, more than curious, in the last few years, the way uh, places, I mean, I watch MSNBC almost religiously, Morning Joe, for example, and uh, Joe Scarborough, who's an ex-Republican Florida congressman, but he's got the gift of gab. And, but at some point you realize he's uh, complicit with the establishment in his uh, use of the term conspiracy, but only for right-wing conspiracies that have surfaced before and after January 6th. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's okay for neoliberal controlled media to talk in terms of conspiracy, conspiratorial thinking being uh, some kind of a fetish or a sickness. And then in the next breath, they talk about conspiracies that are coming from the right wing, whether it's Trump or whoever. So I haven't been able to really sort out the logic or the psycho dimensions that these comments are made. But it's it's uh, like the word conspiracy, the public really doesn't understand. And these uh, corporate media types understand that, that they can say, everything from the Kennedy conspiracy theory to others are a problem and lump them into the same category as the QAnon conspiracies. Okay. Be careful with that. That'll get me banned off YouTube, even mentioning that word. Let's not do that. Um, but I get what you're saying. That's my initial point that I was talking about in the beginning about where do you draw the line at conspiracy? Because what I'd say would do, I think the community has done a lot and the critics, I would call myself a critic of the Warren Commission, 100%. I do not like the Warren Commission. I think they did a, a good job at what they were trying to probably do, which was wrap it up as tightly as they could and make sure it was Oswald. The HSCA should at least get a little bit of a couple of mentions. But when I start coming across people that say Jack Ruby never shot Oswald, it was somebody different, and things of this area, which I've seen in the community, that's the damage part. And that's where we get into the more tinfoil hat discussions, where that's where I feel like it starts ending up shooting itself in the foot, or we start going back. You don't need to go into the specifics a whole lot. If you want answers, just get the documents. That's To me, that's like my only focus right now has been like, why don't we have the documents? That would be my only interest. Everyone goes into the who and the why, and I get it. Everyone wants to solve it. That's fine. 
But there's also like trying to get the public in on the discussion. My generation, plenty of the activist generation as well, too, that really want to try and force and get answers. A lot of these guys aren't focused on this because they don't know about it. They only know what they're being shown on TV, whether it's a containment issue in water in some state or it's something going on there. Then they're very activist about it. Get them interested in the Kennedy assassination. But you enter the I don't think they were ever going to give out the rest of those documents ever. And I think that's why they changed the whole we don't have to give them out now. I don't think they ever thought people were going to be this interested for all this time to be able to do this. Maybe they thought the generation that would be focused into it would die off and they'd release all these documents. I don't think that's the case anymore because I think you have younger generations like myself that are getting interested into it. And they realize, oh, we can't just do that because there's still going to be people that are going to be interested into it and they're still going to care. And I mean, as much as you guys, I don't know how much you guys talk to maybe younger generations about this stuff, but usually when you start going on and talking about the case a little bit, you start to see people go, how has this gone on for so long? That that those younger generations like myself are going to be interested into it. And as we can get them all on board, I just, just don't think they're ever going to want to release those documents. I don't think there's a smoking gun, but I think there's some stuff just like you can learn about COINTELPRO and the church committee and all these types of things that are really going to have people lose credibility in their establishments. They're not going to like their agencies, and I don't know if they like them now, but I've completely gone into be like, as national security, just define your terms, define your policies. Just one of the biggest historical events and the counterpoint to this, which is what people say, is that people just couldn't believe they lose a president to conspiracy. That's always what I hear from the skeptics, and I go, hold on a second. You can't say that because there's a lot of them that aren't Kennedy fans at all, but they do believe conspiracy as well, too. So you got to boil it down to this. If all these people have a problem with the Kennedy assassination being this giant cover up, there might be some weight to that. This isn't one guy saying it. This isn't two people saying it. This is thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And from recent polls, apparently 69 percent of Americans still believe that Kennedy was killed as a result of conspiracy, plus later investigations. So it's not like roll your eyes content. This is like you need to focus in and understand that there's a complete misjustice that or injustice that went on. And we got to figure out what that was, whether it was Oswald's role in it, if he's innocent or not, or with Kennedy. What was there mess mess ups in his autopsy? I mean, I just watched the HSCA footage of I think it's Humes uh, giving testimony and showing the head pictures. And the guy's like, did anybody question how the top of the head's wet and the bottom of the head's not? And it's like just really common statements where I was sitting there just like, oh, my God, like they're really like kind of just like they're showing it. They're like, hey, this is what's going on hearing him explain the rationalizations for a couple of this stuff was just interesting to me. I was like, show anybody this video, show anybody any of the old footage of the HSCA or any of the other stuff out there. You don't need to 100 percent agree with the stuff that they have. But there's serious questions to ask, like, why the hell would you kill two people then go to a theater? You know, like once you start saying that, people start going, you know what? Yeah, that is kind of weird. And I'm like, OK, so it's let's let's get you down to the you know, let me introduce you to the JFK community. Then at that point, everybody's pulling out a bottle of scotch and gin and trying to soak away their sorrows. Well, just to piggyback on that, I think the issue of um, records and why they're not released, I, I think, is is fairly simple in one regard. Um, what I learned in this case was that there are tons of misdeeds and things, some of them not even connected with the assassination, that surface when you investigate this thing. All kinds of things you didn't know about the FBI, the Secret Service, uh, the CIA, all kinds of things, and the plots to kill Castro, all of that stuff 
swirls around this. And, and one of the things that's difficult when you declassify, you may not understand that the document, in fact, might, in fact, inform somebody out there that knows a story, that there's a lot more to it. So you can't just read it without knowing all these things and know what's in there. And what can happen is that somebody who's familiar with one of the elements of this case may see it and say, holy shit, does that ever clarify that? And sometimes the that is not the killing of the president, but it may be covering up on a CIA operation or an FBI operation or a variety of other things that are equally shocking and troubling, but aren't directly connected with the killing of the president. And I think the kicker here, when Oswald was arrested, everybody's running to burn their files, get rid of their files. Uh, you can connect Oswald with so many different groups and people, CIA, FBI, DIA, naval intelligence, right wing, left wing, everybody's running for cover. And the problem here is that, in fact, if you look at what we've got, even thus far in this case, tons of crimes and other conspiracies are right there to look at. And it's, it's, it's quite shocking. And when I started this, I was pretty young. <laughs> I have to tell you, it, it blew me away. But what blew me away was all of the different corrupt or troubling things I was reading and seeing, uh, including that story we talked about in Martinsburg. But the key thing is I'm, I'm looking in the commission's documents and I'm looking at the FBI's own version of what they're doing. And it turned my stomach and shocked me. And the woman who was the subject of Mrs. Hoover, she was an ordinary American housewife, anti-communist, whatever. And she was shocked at how she was treated by the FBI. It's that big picture that's so dangerous. It's not just who killed Kennedy. It's what's wrong with the system. Yeah, I would I would say when your agencies are talking about a skin diving suit to kill Castro and ways to be able to poison it, when I read that and I, I actually posted it and then people are like, what? And I posted with the link, people are clicking it and they start reading the whole like, I think it's like a 189 page document on what they were doing with Castro, the multiple attempts and the things that they were talking about ideas. And I go, yeah, that's I mean, that's people in your agency working. You know, that sounds like a movie, man. That just sounds like something I would go pay 20 bucks to go, you know, get a nice popcorn and be able to sit down and watch a movie about. But no, that's real thinking. And yes, those some of those were just ideas. None were some were not employed or they never had the resource to. They got close. But they never fully employed it. Um but reading through those documents, I was like, yeah, they just openly talk about it. But the thing is, they're not going to be like, hey, here's this document that we have put published it on the front news. No, they're going to post it. MK Ultra Files. I think this was a couple of years ago. Loaded right up on the CIA website. Just didn't tell anybody about it. And some reporter had saw it and like, what the hell? And the intercept got a hold of it and just started posting multiple posts. Go here, go here for MK Ultra stuff. The information sometimes is there, but they're not going to point you towards it. They're not really going to bury it either. They're just not going to make a statement about it, which, I mean, that's not their right to. It's for other people too. But then there's also an issue when it comes to burying documents or reclassifying documents. It's why I don't trust the archives as much as other people do. Other researchers say there's nothing wrong with them. I don't think so. I think that's why you have people that have documents in their basement for so long and don't want to come out about this. There's a lot of people that have information that just don't want to do interviews interviews and they don't do it until maybe the end or if they ever do it.
I'm sure there are plenty of people out there that swore to themselves they would come forward at some point, they would rectify something, they would set the record straight, but they got old, they died, they had a car accident, not suspicious deaths, just normal thing, passage of time. The point is a lot of those things do die with people, they don't come out. Um, you know, um, John Tunheim, I just heard the other day, uh, has not retired, but he has entered a phase of his federal judgeship where he's able to pick and choose the cases that he wants to deal with. And uh, so he showed up, you know, when when Stone's uh, uh, movie came out, what, in the last year sometime with uh, Jim DiEugenio's script. And and he appeared with uh, with Stone and the Mary Farrell Foundation as they met at the Washington Press Club to uh, talk about the lawsuit they were filing against the, the government in order to release files. So Tenheim, I think, is... Um, a lot more interested than he had time to be in the past when he was a full-blown federal judge dealing, you know, I sat in his office with him. Yeah, it's eight years ago now, I'd say. And uh, the things he said there were a lot different than what he says on TV. Now, all of a sudden, he's saying those things on TV interviews that he that he couldn't say before. And so one of the things... Uh, that relate to a, a potential smoking gun is the, the file of George Joannides, J-O-A-N-N-I-D-E-S. It's Joannides. Joannides. Um, don't worry, know. I still can't say your last name, so don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could say Joannides, but not. <laughs> anyway, uh, so he told me when we were together for a couple hours that He's all about documents. And he says, what went on in Mexico City with Oswald is key. So he'll go there and admit there's stuff that should be discussed. And and not like he says on TV, well, you know, until there's documents, I just don't want to talk about them. In private, he'll kind of say the opposite. So now he's in, uh, willing to to back up Roger, or not Roger Stone, God, um, Oliver Stone, and uh, the Mary Farrell Foundation to say that uh, George Joannides' files are crucial to be released because of his coming out of retirement with the CIA in order to be involved in the um, events surrounding before and after the assassination, getting involved with the Cubans and so on. So to that extent, there is some sort of smoking gun that they're still uh, trying to hide because, like you said, Gary, the system is the problem. The system, and you know, you start to sound like some um, right-wing indicter of big government, you know, when you start talking about the government being uh, a problem, but but it is. I mean, it whether it's CIA or 
FBI. They've all done their dirty deeds. And well, I noticed that when I spoke with Blakey and I spoke with Thunheim, when they say something like my personal opinion, and then they go into something, it's like, well, Thunheim's not going to give me real straight answers like he might do now with certain interviews because judge i mean good god what do you want to put your career on the line on stuff i mean even if you get retirement benefits they still pay your retirements but probably best not to you know i wouldn't say bite the hand that feeds but be able to piss off the person that's signing your retirement benefits but i noticed that with any of the arb members as well too i try and go by the documents that's i'll entertain discussions about like there i saw this and i saw that i like hearing stories from people that interview people as well too to me that's interesting one thing I had to correct myself on was when I was talking with Nancy Weiford, um, I thought Oswald did an interview and they said that the person in the interview was not the same person that was on TV. It turns out it was actually an employee of the U.S. Selective Service System had stated that an individual calling himself Harvey Oswald appeared at her office in Austin, Texas, immediately after on lunch on September 25th and discussed with her possibility of rectifying his undesirable discharge from the Marine Corps. Despite the employee's reputability and apparent sincerity, all of the information which she furnished with respect of Oswald's appearance and conversation could have been derived from news media consciously or unconsciously by the time she told the FBI by her story. Other persons in Austin who, according to the employee's testimony, should also have observed Oswald failed to corroborate her testimony. No other evidence trending to show Oswald was in Austin and has been discovered. So someone was using his name. Okay, we know about that. There's multiple Oswalds. But did you hear how quickly they went? Well, her statement's not really good. And it, just throw it out. Doesn't matter if it's Oswald or not. That's a person using his name. We know someone was firing at somebody's targets at a firing range. We know someone tried to go give a rifle to go get Ruth Payne car fixed or something like that. We know someone someone tried to test drive a car. There's like seven people that have come across a Lee Oswald or a Harvey Oswald or a Lee on this or that that was not pursued down. So with that, I think the public could start going, that's a weird investigation. Exactly. It's not a right one because it should have just investigated those, anything. So when we go into what a document can show and what this can show, I'm trying to like, even with that, that shows exactly what Gary's talking about, where it's talking about labeling someone as a unreliable or any of these types of things. And then also you got a document that's basically screaming in your face saying there's another Oswald or someone's using his name or there's a counterfeit person. If anything, that screams it should have been investigated into more, and it already shows holes in the original story. And that's from the official report of the Warren Commission, and they're actual thick volumes. So, I mean, I don't think you really need to get into the whole, like, mafia this because of this and that, Vietnam this because of this and that. I'm like, just show them their investigation. Everyone's seen cops. You watched it at 2 o'clock in the morning in the middle of the night or something. You got the sweats running when the cops are chasing people down. I'm telling you, it doesn't take much. Anybody, Especially with true crime and all this being such a huge topic, there's plenty of people that would love to get interested in this because once you start looking at it, you start going, okay, it's a lot more than what I've seen on TV or what I've seen in movies or what I've seen in this. There is something going on here, and I wonder what that is, and that piques the curiosity. But that's a good example. Uh, anybody who might be impersonating Oswald, where there's not just a misunderstanding or somebody with bad memory, but it's actually that, those were very, very dangerous for the case. Because remember, what the commission and the FBI were doing was pulling together stuff that would make Oswald clearly the lone assassin and would tie the case together and show he had the means and motive and so forth. When uh, uh, early experience, uh, 
when the first double Oswald incidents, where we began to realize there were times when we knew Oswald would have had to have been in two places at the same time. And it wasn't just misidentifying him. It was uh, his name was used or something like that. Mark Lane uh, was, we were talking about what brought trouble. Well, Mark Lane was walking down the street in Manhattan and two FBI agents jumped him and wanted the files and tried to take his briefcase off him. And, and he asked himself, what the hell's going on here? Why now? Well, he had recently, hours before, had some phone calls about the double Oswald stuff, which he didn't take seriously and was not particularly interested in. He, he suddenly realized that's probably the reason they jumped him at that point and were so upset. And as the case went on, uh, long before Popkin's book, The Second Oswald, it became clear that any double Oswald incident where it was clear someone was impersonating him is proof of conspiracy. And it's the kind of thing the average person would realize there's no way that can be going on unless somebody's setting them up. Uh, those things became toxic. And FBI jumped on them. Nobody wanted that out. And of course, the commission didn't want to touch them. They'd love to be able to show Oswald had been practicing with the rifle and was a crack shot. They had to get rid of that because they, Oswald couldn't have been there at the time. But all of that stuff, the frame up, was clever, except they didn't always know where Oswald was. I've heard of I, I've heard of identity theft, but damn, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Brings it to well, a it, well, and that's before the fact. You know, <laughs> somebody's stealing your identity before you met them. But before you so, before you met them, did you say? <laughs> yeah, but I think again that that's an example. If you look at something like that, to say. What the hell's going on here? The same with the magic bullet or anything else where something had to be planted to create bullet uh, commission uh, exhibit 399. You had to have possessed the rifle prior to the assassination and been able to fire bullets from it to obtain one. That thing certainly hit nobody that day. The thing was found, it was clean and shiny somebody planted it to, to have that means you had access to the rifle you had to set all that up before the assassination that's not cover up afterwards that's conspiracy to give yourself the fall guy beforehand that was critical i think like that where you know that alone that's where ray marcus said you just take bullet 399 alone that's conspiracy because there's no middle ground filed fired from that rifle to the exception of all weapons in the world, clean, shiny, undamaged. I, uh, I, I think that's the stopping point, though. When you talk about 399, you got to stop right there. You can't go into who planted the bullet then. Because once you get into that, it goes so – I've heard – I mean, I've heard Jack Ruby was at Parkland because of Seth, well, Seth Canner saw him there. But then they go, oh, Jack Ruby's there, I think, to plant the bullet. And I go, stop. Seth, we don't need to do all this. We don't well, – the Secret Service could have. Anybody could have. It doesn't matter about that. Just look at the bullet, and the physics don't work. Look at the plot of what they plotted. Realize an investigation is done by human beings. Human beings make mistakes where the conspiracy comes in as if those mistakes were on purpose. And then we find out what the purpose part was. I mean, if you're just covering your ass because you already made a public statement about Oswald did it. Now the guy's dead and you go, well, if we said we were wrong, we 
possibly could be murder charges for getting this guy killed, basically, for whoever Jack Ruby going after. Now, if all that was planned, we don't need to worry about. But if you just look at the whole cover your ass part, what do you see the agencies? What do you see Dallas police do? Hostie destroying a note three weeks after Oswald's name for killing the president. Is that a giant conspiracy or is it that they knew about the guy before and now they have to cut off all their connections? Why did the agencies pull all their files on Oswald? They all had files. I'm looking through documents saying there's a whole list of this in the 201 file. It's even on the Mary Farrell site. What did they say to the guy, Agent Demencia, when he was giving an interview talking about working with some guy who worked at a radio factory in Minsk in 1959? Lady requests for a document from a research board saying, do you happen to have Oswald's CIA interview or debrief? No, we have never debriefed or anything like that. We don't know who you're, where you got that information from. Well, this agent said he enlisted off the characteristics exactly as Oswald. So do you have this file or not? Oh, we never classified it as a debrief. It's not lying. It's just really, it's legal speak and it sucks because you're like, damn it. It's like filing a Freedom of Information Act. You got to request every single detail down to the coffee they had that morning or you're done. And that's where you look at these documents. These agencies do have a tactic, much like if you look at the Watergate hearings. That's the FBI's document. The FBI goes, actually, that's the CIA's document. Or the CIA goes, actually, that's the NSA's document. Then it, this is a month, 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 month process. It's just, it takes such an extended period of time. They really drag it out to where you get a piece of paper. I mean, they could have destroyed more, but they get the paper and it's a short little paragraph that's scanned in online, upside down. You got to read it through a mirror or upside down or something like that. And it's like, well, how do you expect us to be able to decipher anything out of what you just gave us? And they're like, good luck. That's well, that's, but isn't that precisely the point? They don't particularly care to have you decipher uh, anything out of it. I, I think the bottom line here is that uh, fortunately, there wasn't one big cover up or one big plot because that's allowed things to leak out. So that's the only reason we have some of the pieces we have. The Siebert and O'Neill notes on the autopsy, for example. I mean, there are tons of places where not everybody was playing by the same rule book. The only part of the rule book that everybody agreed on was that all of the stuff gets deep sixed. However, there are copies of things. Probably one of the smartest things Hal Weisberg ever did when one of the first trips I made at the archives, he said, I want you to go through all the GAI files, general administrative files. I thought, why, Harold? What's going to be in there? Well, it was a gold mine. That's where we discovered memos where the attorneys taking the single bullet theory apart, the attorneys pointing out inconsistencies. All these attorneys were generating all these internal memos. They're not commissioned documents. They would never have seen a live day. But we got a part of the story of the cover-up from those files, their own files, which nobody thought to classify. Because, you know, they're not evidence of anything other than what the commission knew. Now, that's also how we learned about things like uh, the Wagoner Carr, the Attorney General of Texas, meeting with the commission in a meeting that is not listed or recorded, of course, anywhere in the official version. Uh, the only place it came out was uh, Gerald Ford's book, uh, Portrait of the Assassin. Chapter one, the commission got its first shock, and he describes this meeting that's not on the record where the commission met with Wagoner Carr and Henry Wade, district attorney, and heard that Oswald had been an FBI informant, S-179, and that he had been a CIA uh, in, uh, agent uh, or uh, operative of some kind, 110669 was supposedly his number. 
God only knows where all that came from. But the point was, commission were told things like that right off the bat. The fact that they were told that it's not on the official record. Again, Ford, and again, Ford's book coming out is fascinating. Nobody flagged that since it's not in the official version. And we know it happened. We now know more about it. But my point is that, again, the agencies were running for cover because all of them can be connected to Oswald in some way. I don't believe he was anybody's agent. I think he was a low-level informant. And I think this trip to the Soviet Union was part of a, a program the CIA was running where they were getting young Americans, mostly idealistic, to defect or to try to, you know, Oswald was a highest level defector probably in the program and that he actually had radar defenses of the West Coast. He knew codes. And in fact, it was in the Washington Post when he defected the Lieutenant Donovan, his commander, said that it took thousands of man hours to change all that security stuff once he defected. But, you know, all of that fits with his personality. He goes over whatever he's doing. The Russians don't buy it at all, wouldn't even let him in at first. Then he makes a suicide attempt. They let him in. He's there for a couple of years, comes back. The, the, the point being, and what's the one call he gets to make from the police station? He made. He makes it to us. Well, he calls a, a guy as a CI man in, in Virginia and basically doesn't get through because you have agents. And now we know that who are intercepting and told the told the uh, uh, woman handling the phone, uh, the, the, the telephone uh, operator to not put the call through and to tell him it wouldn't go through. So he never made the actual contact. You said Virginia. Is that the I thought that was the rally call. Raleigh, um, North Carolina. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, right. It's Raleigh, yeah, sorry. Look at I'm that, wrong. I'm learning over a year. Holy shit, no, I'm just kidding. But no, there's a real thing, like, it's a real question, which is, if you interview at the CIA or the FBI, you think they're not gonna just keep tabs on you for so long? I mean, they had documents on Oswald long before the assassination even took place, which is where they tried to cover their ass and destroying all those as well, too. But it brings up into the question, which is, do you think with all this technology we have now, being able to fake a document or do anything, make things look really, really authentic, you have people questioning Northwoods when North recently, when the, the documents just got released, Northwoods came up and the people were saying that was a conspiracy. They were reading the document of it and saying Northwoods is a conspiracy. There's issues like the Jack Ruby not shooting Oswald scenario, but there's real things where now when documents come out, people go, that's not real. I've showed plenty from the 22 release on air before with the riff number and everything. People in the comments show me where that document is and I post a link to it. It's real about a person getting a polio inoculation and all this type of crap. I have shown that because it's so insane. And I don't know what to do with it, but it's so much now where technology has gotten to the point where even if something did reveal, like here's the document for JFK and who did it, which honestly, if I think there's a document that is going to bring some real light to the situation, they kept the original autopsy stuff a hundred percent. They didn't destroy the original stuff. They have to know exactly what went down and it has to be recorded somewhere. I doubt they destroyed that. That's something they want to keep. Okay, I'm just saying because there's going to be people that die that knew that were there that younger generations are going to have to understand whether they're going into the CIA or FBI. That's my belief. But there's things that you really examine, and it goes well. Technology is going to get to a point where you nobody's going to believe anything. People are going to pick what they want to run with. They're going to pick who did it, whatever. Not just in the Kennedy assassination, but in everything. We've entered an area of what people label misinformation, disinformation. Sometimes it's hard to blend the two, and it's 
sometimes it could be real stuff, but if we never pursue and have the conversation about it, it's never going to get any light to it. It's just going to keep going down this road where now I feel like everyone's kind of distorted and they just don't care. Like you talk about something, people just, everything's now a roll your eyes subject. Well, I think you make a good point. One of our challenges today is that we've learned to distrust a lot of information because your eyes can fool you. In fact, things can be doctored up. And I think it's, it is getting harder to know. I've been fooled by some incredibly effective film footage and stuff. I think, wow, that was faked. That's incredible. But I do think that that is a current hazard we have that uh, that's where earlier documents, things that we've had for a long time are safer in general. If you actually have something that surfaced uh, in 62 or 63, where somebody's got a copy of it from the archives back then, I'm far more likely to believe it than something that nobody ever saw before and suddenly pops up. I think it's tough with totally new things to know what you're dealing with. You know, the uh, <clears throat> Gary, both of both you and I spoke to the group in London, DPUK, and <clears throat> I mentioned this on my previous talk with Robbie. When I asked them, it, it amazes me how up to speed uh, quite a few Britain British are cognizant of in terms of the assassination whether it's Greg Parker in Australia or researchers in Canada or these people in London, especially, but they're all over the UK. They know details that, you know, you listen to them and you learn something. But I asked them, I said, so why are you so interested in the assassination? Yeah, our pre-revolutionary and revolutionary history is tied up with each other, but what is it and they um who's the guy that is very prolific right now doing his oswald studies that bart camp yeah bart camp he's the one that answered it. he says hey in britain all the all the secrets are locked up in the united states we can get to information using the foia which explains why that damn foia sucks so bad yeah yeah and so who who knew? I mean, you always, at least I've always perceived uh, the UK to be pretty liberal and, and a few steps of, ahead of us in terms of progressivity, but not. Not and the Official even, Secrets Act. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that anyway, British that, intelligence that's... isn't telling you a single thing about what you want to know. They keep their secrets on lock. But they also don't talk about conspiracy like we talk about conspiracy. You say the word conspiracy, people go, oh, God. And then... I think you can easily get people to the level of it, but that is a history lesson where I'm like, you can start that in the education system and then wait for the payout when it comes 20 years when that generation of kids that learn that stuff grow up to be adults and they realize, oh shit, yeah, the government's messed up. They have a track record of it in the past. I just don't like the double standard. Like you talk about COINTELPRO and the acts the FBI did to you know, invade the Black Panther Party, the assassination of Fred Hampton. People will believe it. Yeah, the government sucks. And then you talk about the Kennedy assassination. No, the government would never do such a thing. I'm like, bruh, what are we talking about? It's just because it's your president. I'm like, it's a human being if you really boil it down to and look at the military industrial complex, a bunch of machines, you know, cogs in a machine. 
it's all flowing without really these interactive figures that come in every four years or whatever you want to say. They're just there for the the time. They're like it's like vacation home that you get to stay in. Like they're just there and then they leave and then someone else takes over. Getting back to the uh, you'd mentioned Gary the defector program. So I don't know if you remember, but uh, I think it was Care Eleven. That's K A R E. Uh, Robbie, it's a yeah. I'm dyslexic. God, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a cute handle for a, a, a TV station, news station, Care 11. And it, I think it was them 20 years ago, 15 years ago, they did an interview with a guy that was the head of the defector program at INS. Now, this is on the six o'clock news. And they, you know, just local and they did about a 10 minute spot and they had this guy on TV they went out and interviewed him in a Minneapolis Western suburb. And, uh, you know, he's about 90, but he still remembered everything. So I didn't see that, but I heard about it. I called up the station and I said, I want to get to this guy. So they got clearance from his daughter to let me go out to, uh, I think it was Hopkins or Minnetonka. And, uh, so I met with him for about an hour and with his wife and he said he was in charge of letting defectors to come back into the u.s and he said he got the first request from oswald or his handlers who knows to let him back in and he said no no you're a defector you're a traitor so this guy was the head of that division in the ins in dc now, talk about compartmentalization or need to know. Here he was functioning as though Oswald was simply a traitor, you know, a real commie traitor. He said, I got two more requests, and I turned them both down. And my higher-ups at INS were saying, come on, let him back in. And finally, the fourth time, he was going to turn Oswald's entry down again and this time, his higher-ups came to him and said, the State Department says you will let him back in. Well, you know, what does that say about who was behind all this? You know, the military-industrial complex is involved with the highest levels of the State Department. Um, you've got to believe. And that if that's who was behind the assassination... Um, you know, the people who were running foreign policy at that time, which is my belief and Di Eugenio's belief that that's where it's coming from. Um, you know. That's an interesting piece, because that that that's very consistent with the fact that when he defected, they never put a watch card out for his passport. Yeah. And, and he and, renounced his U.S. citizenship and told publicly said he was get, giving away military secrets <laughs> yeah and he never uh that's a you know, smart thing always, to do everybody thinks that you're giving the nation secrets and right. he had some and he didn't uh, we got to remember he never ever relented or apologized and the fbi this ever-present fbi spent took a week before they met with him when he came back a week. So not only is it weird that he got back in, uh, 
but there wasn't even a big issue about gee we better we got to debrief him we got to talk to him and stuff yeah big and deal. yet and yet the general commentary about him getting back is that he got back so easy well here was the ins saying no four times and finally it's the state department that intervenes and at that point yeah he gets back in easy but not until they had to you know pull all stops and let it say you're going to let him back in so those kinds of documents uh you know <laughs> i'm sure aren't uh, very available well and here uh who contacted the congressman about giving him money to get back i mean they they paid his way back i mean even the money thing is interesting because um uh there was an analysis done of how much money he ever had in his bank account and what the cost was to defect and i think they it was about $1700 to get there now there's a caveat with that is we don't know how he got from London to Helsinki. When his passport is stamped, there is no commercial flight that is flying at that time. It had to be a private aircraft or military, but he could not have flown civilian. So the cost of his defection is a little bit tricky because there's that one leg that might've been free, <laughs> but fundamentally, uh, in fact, that calculation was done in part, assuming he took a regular airliner, which he, we know he didn't. God, I just picture him before he gets a job or before he's at the book depository when Kennedy's killed. They just go real quick. Do you have any plans within the next day or so to maybe travel on a small airplane? Um, we're really good at making those just disappear where no one can find them. This would be way easier than getting Jack Ruby to get you. Well, they probably one of the more interesting questions is since we know he wasn't up there shooting and was most likely in the second floor lunchroom at the time, certainly was there within moments of the shots and getting a Coke out of a machine. Both men voluntarily had him with a Coke in the hand. Both men were asked to go back and they both crossed it out and both initialed the cross out. But the point is the original statements they each gave, both had him holding the Coke. So he did that without being nervous or excited after supposedly having shot the president, hid the rifle. Remember, it was the FBI concluded it was not just thrown there. It was stuffed in between boxes, got down four flights of stairs. Well, you know all of that kind of stuff. But I've wondered, what happens at that point? Does Oswald make a phone call? If so, to whom? What's the thing about going back to uh, Beckley? his apartment why does he arm himself why does he go to the texas theater um it's a mind-boggling that he came out of the texas theater alive the place was surrounded by cops this is for a guy who went in without paying that's all he was not they were not following the trail of the tippet killer they were not following it certainly had nothing to do with the assassination what the hell happened Two people were arrested in the theater, too. One was in the balcony. One that guy, I wouldn't say looked like Oswald, but apparently there was a similarity enough to where it was arrest. So they walked in there knowing that who they were looking for. I tried to understand. I've heard various accounts from people saying they never called out Oswald's appearance correctly on the radio. They said, I think he said added 20 pounds to the guy. And then they said he was a little bit taller. 
um, when they called it over the radio saying the suspect that they were looking for. But they went right to the theater and they arrested two people that looked similar. And one was Oswald. And you can look at the statements in the interviews of one of the guys that was in the theater. He talked about Oswald gets up and says, you're doing this just like you do to the, the black people. And it, in their language, it's a little bit more colored, not how I said it. But they said something like that. And I was like, is that real? Did he say that? Doesn't sound like the guy I know. I mean, Greg Parker has the best example of who Oswald is. And he thinks Oswald might have been a little bit on the spectrum. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, his book focuses more on the military aspect of his time. I think there's a photo of him like standing in the background of like some barracks in the lunchroom or something. I don't know where that photo came from, but he's kind of like looking at the floor and he seems a little bit off. But if you listen to any accounts that have met what I think is Oswald, they say that he's like a not wouldn't say a loner type, but he's quiet. You know, if you ask him a question, he'll answer you. And it that fits very, I mean, he could have some type of like enhanced IQ. Sure. That's very common with people who are maybe on the spectrum in some aspects, but I would buy that to me. That sounds more plausible than all the other things of him spitting at people or him yelling at people and doing all this type of communist propaganda. And we know from the interview where he's talking about very intelligently about communism and Marxism, things like that. So you look at that. And but he's very, like, very low key in that interview. As you're characterizing, I think quite correctly, uh, he he was in fact that way when he was evaluated by Dr. Hartogs in New York when he was uh, an adolescent. That's the way he appeared in the Marine Corps. He's not a fire spitting, yelling, uh, outgoing person. He he's he's sort of retiring and somewhat a little bit of a loner type. So I mean to me that's oswald right there but then you have other varying accounts of it as well too so it makes it very very difficult and i mean what Gary... you know that theater was surrounded by cop cars and a, and which drew a crowd and there were photos taken at the time and in the crowd and i i blocking on the guy's name i got to him he was uh in the panama canal zone when i reached him uh and uh he said that uh, people were talking about that the that it must be the guy who killed the president or stuff like that 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 was in the crowd uh and i was just fascinated by that the, the, the how this you could end up with all those cop cars and then the big crowd of course is partly with all that level of police activity you're thinking and this is for a call about a guy who went in without paying at a time when the city's on the alert and worried about all kinds of things. A guy who doesn't pay for a, a movie ticket. Did you ever see his arrest photo where he's laying there in the theater and he's just like staring at the floor? That does not strike me as someone that's like, oh shit, I didn't get away with it. That strikes me as someone that's like, what the hell's about to happen to me? Like that, to me, that's what it looks like. And I know that's speculation. Obviously, you can't use that as evidence or anything. But I mean, even in his interviews, he's given saying, I haven't been charged with killing the president and they're not telling me what I'm in here for. And it's just like you start hearing all this. I'm like, at no point did he say I did it and I was glad to do it. At no point he let, leave anything by the window. I mean, how do you expect people to know it was you? Did he think he was going to get away with it? Well, then why the hell would you go to a movie theater? Go home. You know, hide in the basement or something. I don't know. See, I I believe he he I believe he called it into somebody, and was instructed what to do next. And I you know I believe again. Um, I don't believe he was on duty then in any fashion, but I believe he he made a call, got an instruction, and that's what followed. Uh, 
I have no idea what role Tippett played, except that it was fairly key. And we know it's a highly sensitive area of the case. There have been a lot of threats and a lot of other issues. I don't think anybody knows why for sure. Uh, but that, you know, uh, and it's been a hard thing to speculate on, regardless of which account of the Tippett slang you, you believe. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and of course, we don't know much about Tippett himself uh, and how this all fits together. So, but that whole set of actions is uh, fascinating in terms of trying to figure out what in God's name is going on here. Uh, it seems to me, uh, Robbie, I haven't watched Greg Parker the three times you've interviewed him, but can't remember if he contends that the Beckley rooming house didn't happen or if it was the theater that didn't happen or both. But at any rate, he, Parker, really takes positions that are unusual, outside the box thinking. And uh, then it begins to seem plausible that this whole thing is part of a frame-up, part of a, an attempt to have Oswald doing things that we chase for 60 years. I mean, at 10 years on the 50th, I went into the Texas theater and when I walked up to the door, it was locked and I could see somebody inside. So I knocked on the door and they, they let me in. And, and, and so I went into the theater park and there was a, one of the theater seats about two thirds of the way back that had Lee Harvey Oswald sat here embroidered into the Oh, really? Fascinating. <laughs> and, and, but there was a stairway right inside the front door where you would go after buying your ticket. I think there, it was an outside window, ticket window. And if it was raining, you'd go inside, I suppose. But you would walk in and you could, within a few feet, head upstairs to the balcony. Or you could go straight into the lobby and then you'd be seen by uh, somebody at the concession stand, et cetera. So, uh, you know, I don't know what Parker says about all of that being concocted, but, uh, you know, two billfolds, two Oswalds, one upstairs, one downstairs. It's um, so convoluted that it you, you need chat GPT to put it all together, right? <laughs> I'm sure somebody is doing that as we speak. They're taking it'll, all it'll these. It'll give you any answer you want. That chat GPT yeah. will tell you anybody but killed them. Supposedly, as uh, AI, it's able to synthesize stuff that uh, we're not quite able to do with our human brains and all our distractions. If someone just makes an unredact app, would be the best thing in the world. I've tried a couple of them. They use AI to try and predict the text. It doesn't make sense and it doesn't work. But if someone could just find a way to remove those redactions off a document, I would be forever grateful. Gary, I watched I watched your, uh, I don't know, two week ago interview with Robbie. Oh, uh -huh. conversation, I, man. What are we talking about? What? Conversation. 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, and uh, I don't remember there being anything about David Croman, and I don't know if Robbie, because I didn't talk about him in my interviews, but just let me introduce it for a, a moment before Gary fleshes it out. The um, uh, David Croman was living in Minneapolis, and um, he became part of the 
scenario in that he oh, I'll let you take it from there Gary Flesh well he's an attorney who claimed to have knowledge of the assassination was going to hold a press conference he was a when he was arrested in connection with an insurance fraud that was a major insurance fraud case that that uh, took place that involved some leading uh, figures in the Democratic Party and one Republican. Uh, the insurance fraud has nothing to do with this, but that's what gave him some visibility. He never held a press conference. Car was run off the road. Uh, there was apparently a disguise kit in it and so forth. And he never really did say publicly who he thought killed the president. The trial had been moved uh, out of Minnesota. The venue was a federal court in Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, in any event, um, it turned out, however, that he had been to Dallas not long after the assassination, had visited uh, ATL Hunt's offices. They fingerprinted him. Uh, he was using a name of Don Morgan. It wasn't he wasn't using his own name, but they did the old gave him a glass of water and then took it in the back and took the prints off it. Uh, and um, uh, Croman became this kind of mysterious figure. It turned out he was some kind of an operative, but nobody was sure who, what, where, or why. He was um, uh, he had a, a manuscript attacking the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. Hubert Humphrey, of course, our own local uh, favorite. Uh, the thing was entitled The House That Hubert Built. I never got a look at it. But anyway, amidst all this, because of his claims about the Kennedy case and his general demeanor, they sent him for a psych evaluation. What was interesting is they didn't do it anywhere in Minnesota. We have plenty of places it could have been done. He was sent to the federal medical center in Springfield, Missouri. Now that's also where Abraham Bolden, the Secret Service agent was, and also where Richard Case Nagel was. So he was there contemporaneous with those folks and um, apparently interacted with them. Um, he later showed up going down to um, uh, provide input uh, to Garrison's investigation. And all of them were, his input generally was uh, giving cred credibility to the story of Richard Case Nagel and was a big part of a, a whole conspiracy theory, okay? The problem was we knew in Minnesota the guy was not legit, but we didn't know what he was or who he worked for. I uh, found that he was working under in disguise as a night janitor. The guy's an attorney. He's a night janitor at a local mental hospital. And apparently uh, the question was why? Was there files in there? He, he told me point blank he was photographing files and in fact had a lunch pail where he had a camera in it. Uh, again, had no idea who it was that was in there. I checked with colleagues in the field to see if anybody knew anything. Um, I also talked with somebody who had evaluated him and said there was no way the guy was crazy. He said he was interesting, crafty, quite bright. Uh, and uh, But they said they didn't think he was crazy at all. So the whole connection to the case is convoluted, but it has to do with under uh, uh, input he was giving to or attempting to give to the Garrison investigation and 
reinforcing uh, the Nagel story as a key one. Uh, I didn't believe any of that was legit and eventually got to give that input to Garrison. Um, they also distorted what it was that Abraham Bolden had to say about the case and why he was there. But later learned from someone who had worked in the prison psychiatrist's office was a draft resistor from Wisconsin who also was sent there for psych eval um, that Bolden was being heavily medicated and very badly treated and was like a zombie when he was in the hospital. And Nagel walked around like he owned the place. Um, so again, uh, Nagel eventually went to Leavenworth and eventually was let out, uh, as you probably know, within, I think, six days of his leaving federal custody, he ended up in East, East Berlin and was actually, uh, actually exchanged, brought back on a, with a spy swap. So uh, Nagel is, it's an, uh, Nagel is a, a part of the character played by Donald Sutherland in the original JFK movie. He's the guy that uh, Garrison meets with. That's a, actually an amalgam of uh, Nagel, who did meet with Garrison, and uh, Fletcher Prouty. It, it's, it's not, that's not a real character. It's one that's crafted out of things that both of them had to say. Uh, but... Uh, Gary, I mean, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, Croman. Uh, was uh, involved with that insurance company fraud in uh, St. Paul. And it was a father-son Chicago mob duo that was running it, running the insurance company, but they were skimming the premiums. And uh, one of their other lawyers, if Croman was a lawyer, then so was Sandy Keith, who eventually became Lieutenant Governor and onto the Minnesota Supreme Court. and. So Sandy Keith decided in spring of 67 to hijack the nomination for governor of Minnesota from Rolvog, who was drinking too much. Well, by August at their convention, they decided that uh, they weren't going to treat Rolvog that way. And so they took the nomination back from Sandy Keith and uh, he never became governor. Rolvog became governor that year. But now now I remember when I looked at your session with Robbie from a couple of weeks ago, you didn't mention it, but I mentioned it in mine a month ago uh, that you were uh, involved with understanding Croman. So that's, we got that out of the way. We got your fleshed out story now. But there I am in Rochester where the Mayo Clinic is a couple of years ago. And uh, 10 years before that, I'd been down there for some conference, and here was Sandy Keith, the uh, still Supreme Court Justice, with his shingle hanging in the concourse of the University of Minnesota Rochester. And I made note of that so that when I was there two years ago, I'm walking down the corridor, and here he's walking at me. And I knew about his resignation from the insurance company in St. Paul, and that he couldn't afford to be, uh, uh, couldn't afford to appear to be mobbed up if he was going to hijack the nomination for the governorship. So I get, uh, he walks right up to me and, and I said, Mr. Uh, Keith, you wouldn't remember me, but, but 
we crossed each other's paths in Southwest Minnesota when I was running for the state legislature in 86, 88. You know, we'd be on some farm, some rich farmer and uh, donators would show up. And uh, he said, no, uh, you know, he obviously didn't remember that, but he said, well, where are you from? I said, Chaska. He says, oh, I was just out there two days ago to check on development. Well, he's 90 years old. And like Robbie said, when I told this story a few weeks ago, uh, 90 years old and he's checking on investments. Well, the point is the Sicilian mob bought 4,500 acres of Chaska back in 72. And I ran as a Democrat in 86, 88. But if I smell like there's a slush fund for politicians from Republican or Democratic Party, I take, take notice. That's what I think it is. And so here's Sandy Keith mobbed up in 67. He's still mobbed up in 2001. And uh, he's, uh, you know, one of many politicians that are benefiting from that 4,500 acre purchase by the Sicilian mafia who I've met right here in Chaska. And they will brag about it, not realizing that you know more about the equation than they realize. And uh, I mean, there's a lot more to it in terms of my theory, but having run for state office and find having potential investors come out of the woodwork if they think you might win, I'm, I'm glad I didn't win because you owe them when they start contributing to your campaign. It's just like Jesse Ventura, when he was in the governorship, uh, I met with his son in Dallas for a few minutes and I said, you said your dad was uh, uh, having to deal with a gatekeeper as governor that was CIA. So then I met with Ventura for a couple hours in St. Paul and I said, your son said this, is that true? He's, yeah, he says, the first guy I met when I became governor was this CIA gatekeeper. And the last guy I shook hands with when I left was that guy. I'm so glad I didn't win a second time to have to put up with that. So there's so much. It's like the ice proverbial iceberg that 90% of it's below the surface. And so much of the corruption has gone legit. And most people have no clue. Um, unless they're, uh, well, I'm not paranoid, but unless they're uh, snooping around enough to see what's making the whole thing tick, you know? I'm paranoid. It, Every time I say something on a show, like a month later, someone says it on the news. I'm like, who the hell's listening to me? Stop, stop feeding off. I'm kidding. But no, just to clarify, you said 90 years old, and then I made my, my little joke statement in your episode. I also thought Gary was dead when you're describing him. Not saying Gary's 90, but anytime someone mentions someone from the JFK assassination, I just think most of the answers I hear, I go, can I talk to that guy? They go, oh, no, he's dead. I'm like, when did he die? Like 20 years ago. I'm like, damn, because that's like everything in the Kennedy assassination. There's like, besides researchers, I mean, all the ones like I'm jealous of Gary's interviews and also his relationship with, you know, garrison and all the people he got to be able to meet i mean i'm jealous of that i interest in the assassination i'm just reading documents with their names on them now i mean he used a whole bunch of harold weisberg's documents and i think there's a good catalog of them out there i think it's on the internet archive um really crucial stuff 
but he's not around for me to be able to know who he is. So it was good to be able to learn more about him. Um, plenty of other researchers too. I wish I could have talked to that aren't around, but I'm glad you guys gave me the time. I mean, that's important. I mean, at least I'm trying to catch up the best I possibly can, but I just figured out, don't go into so much detail when it comes into like trying to figure stuff out, stick with the basics, assassination, conspiracy. Here's the conspiracy things in a normal investigation that don't match up. And if you really stay with that, like I said, the planning of the bullet at Parkland is a big one right now that I've seen, um, which is who did it, you know, all this. I'm like, do we need all that? I mean, it's a perfectly pristine bullet. Let's not get out of the logic of like, how do you expect this thing to go through two people? That's the two people bullet, right? That's the one that went through two. Okay, just making right, sure. Yeah. Someone commented, and, they're like, and, no, and that's and not basically, the same thing. Yeah, and, and created multiple injuries, broken bones, and God only knows where it, how it's there because you got metal in the governor's wrist. I mean, it's still, you know, he he was buried with that metal still in there. Yeah, he had some in so, his leg too, didn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the, the whole point is the how the hell do you account for the fact that the man was put into the ground with some material still in there? It's not missing from the bullet. The only thing that's damaged in any way is the bottom of the bullet, which is what you know blows out when it gets launched those, those are old bullet fragments they were there when we were picking out the other one <laughs> what's this guy doing in his nightlife well it's a but i totally agree i think you can get lost in fighting over minimal details the bottom line is the key thing is a pristine bullet that came from that weapon into something and is indistinguishable from the test bullets fired into cotton tubes by the FBI, indistinguishable. And I think there's good evidence that it was in fact found at the Parkland Hospital and on the floor. Um, it might've rolled off a stretcher, but it was picked up off the floor. Um, and that's, you know, it doesn't matter that Daryl Tomlinson supposedly found it, who used to work for Ruby, whether Ruby was out there, who cares? The, the bottom line is not who found it. The bottom line is somebody put it there. It didn't fly there and it didn't drop out of anybody's body. So somebody had to take it. That means somebody had to have it in their pocket. And that means somebody needed to possess it before the assassination occurred. I mean, that's, I, I agree with all the people that say that bullet alone says conspiracy. Did you There's guys, no way that bullet can be there without there being a conspiracy. Did you guys have any um, final notes you guys want to end up? We've almost been talking two hours. Um, any, anything when it comes to the assassination that you feel like just one last message to either new researchers or people in the community already or even thoughts on the remaining documents and you know what the course like next five years is going to be, 10 years? Well, I have a very strong feeling what you're doing is great, Robbie. That's a breath of fresh air. Thank God it's still alive and people like you are still asking the questions. That's exciting to me. Uh, that's the only thing that gives us a, a positive future. It's people like you stepping out and really making an effort to take a hard look at this and communicate about it. That's what it's all about. As yeah, long as Robbie, you're doing your work, there's hope. Robbie, do you, have you any sense of... Uh your contemporaries uh, getting 
interested as a result of what you're doing. I can't believe that there wouldn't be numerous uh, people your age that are taking notice of your of your work. A lot of my friends have gotten interested into it. And then a lot of my listening stuff, YouTube shows differently than what my Spotify is. You got to remember out of all my episodes on Spotify, I have over, I have over 3 million listens. So that's a lot more than what my YouTube reflects. So my YouTube content, the older generations kind of, that's where they go. They don't really know about Spotify. So messages I get from people that follow me from Spotify, people in other countries, you know, whether it's the UK, Ireland, they'll message like, you're really hitting down this JFK topic. I'm like, yeah, anybody that's like, I've seen research wise, I have to ask questions and I have to try and understand what this is a little bit. And it's almost been a hundred guests basically that are all JFK related. Um, it's the only, because to me, it's not even about, it's really, a, it's a passion thing now. At this point, I'm like stuck on it. I hope, I mean, I talked to Bob Katz recently. I don't know if you caught that episode, but he was like, yeah, I got out of it. I was like, how the hell did you do that? You know, like to me, it's just like a vortex and, you know, usually when I'm hanging out with friends or something, you know, they always ask a question. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? I'm like, don't ever ask me who did it. I just don't just don't. I don't know who did it. We don't know who did it. They had the moment to find out who did it and they didn't. They didn't find it. They picked the Oswald and ran off with it. Any names or any investigation thing was basically gone after that. So me looking back, I just kind of stay out of that area. But I've noticed people that start looking in not only to that, but I point people towards the church committee. You know, I just go read this. Just really level yourself with this. That's what I basically looked at and just kind of realized, man, when people say conspiracy, look into what that is. And I guarantee you there's a track record history of it. I mean, hopefully we get more people that will be activists towards getting files released and stuff like that. And But, yeah, I mean, I think there's an interest to it, just highlighting your guys' work and giving you guys a platform to be able to at least educate me a little bit more and in turn educate everybody else. That's what you guys should have had way back in the day as well too. All the first all the first generation generation researchers and everyone who's followed afterwards who have done great work. They all should have had a main platform to be able to speak and let the public decide for themselves. I mean the fact that they haven't shows complicity between the media and the government, but also the way that they value people's knowledge. They go, these people can't decipher this, decipher the truth for themselves. They can't even see it, right? I mean, what's that PBS documentary where they're showing the Zapruder film and the guy goes, it looks like the head goes back. He goes, to the untrained eye, you don't know if Jackie Kennedy could have just pushed him back. He also said the public can't decipher it for themselves. And I go, what are we talking about here? Like, it's not only an insult, you know, and then you get, I get my Maryland comes out of me where I'm like, did he just insult me, call me dumb? But there's a whole aspect of like, they're going to tell you, and this is what you should think. I'm like, think for yourself. Asking a question is never a problem. We've never done that in society. Educational systems taught you to ask questions if you don't know something. But now you get shamed for asking a question. And in the Kennedy assassination, I experienced that more than ever. Did you uh, ever have a chance to interview Ernest Totovitz? No. He, you, you know who he is? Is he still alive? Yeah. Okay. He's a neurologist in Minsk, and he was Oswald's best friend. Okay, I know who you're talking about now. I reached out to him. I never got anything back. Okay. Um, I spent four days with him back in 13, just by coincidence. We were in the same hotel by accident. I had rented a car with a couple other guys. It was 30 degrees that weekend of the JFK conference in Dallas. It was warmer in Minneapolis, and they had moved the conference to a hotel six blocks 
from Dealey Plaza. And so we ended up giving him a ride back and forth. So he'd end up sitting with us. And, uh, and then at the end of the conference, I took him around downtown Dallas to find a bank that he could set up an account with so he could sell his book. And uh, it, it was called uh, Oswald's Russian Episode and uh, still available. But if you want to get a sense of uh, the loyalty that someone like Tatovitz had to Oswald based on Oswald's sanity and cultural uh, astuteness, whether it be chess or opera, he spent three years with him, with Oswald, and knew him to the point where the last day of the conference, he says to me, you know, that guy at the back of the room is trying to sell my book for 60 bucks. I'm pissed off. He says, take me back to my hotel and let's get uh, all the books. He had boxes that he had brought with him somehow. And we loaded them into the car, went back to the hotel where the conference was, took them into the uh, lobby outside of the conference room. And he went up to the podium. He got permission to go up to the podium. He had already given his talk and he played recordings of Oswald and he talking about this, that, and the other thing, especially uh, things like opera and so on. And uh, he said to the audience, my book will be available at the end of the conference outside this room for free. So he was he was retaliating for somebody that he didn't know getting a whole bunch of his books and selling them for 60 bucks a piece. And after he did that, we went to lunch at the Egyptian lounge where Ruby hung out and so on. And a couple other guys and I that were with him, we walked around the, uh, the restaurant part of the Egyptian lounge bar. And he just sat in the bar at a table. We had just eaten spaghetti. And, uh, you know, the manager said, yeah, I, uh, Ruby sat over in that booth in the corner. And so we were getting the lay down, uh, the lowdown of what the place was about. And he was very quiet. And I went into the other room and I said to another guy, I said, look, look at Tatovitz. He's, he's very moody right now. What's going on? And then it hit me. It was 50 years to the hour that Oswald had been killed. And here we are acting like tourists, you know, trying to scope out what was going on at the Egyptian lounge. The manager took us into a room where the two French assassins supposedly hung out before and after the assassination. Whether it was true or not, that's what they said. So I went down, I sat down next to him and said, geez, Ernst, I'm sorry, I didn't understand the gravity of the moment. And he says, uh, you know, it's a long time ago, don't worry about it. But between giving his book away an hour earlier and then being very uh, conscious of what hour it was, and I just thought, how the hell did we end up with him here at that moment? It was, it was just, it was strange. And, you know, the next couple of days that I roamed around Dallas with him looking for a bank, 
And well, even previous to that, he would talk about how <laughs> there's no way Oswald had the kind of personality that would have gone after the president. And uh, so, you know, I think his his whole story is worth a lot in terms of making Oswald innocent. Is there a place? I don't know. If I, I'll, I don't I'll, know if I, what? Go ahead. I will say I, I I'll, I'll reach out to him again, but I don't know. I haven't heard any contact information from him, so I could try. But now I'm just a person sending out emails, and I don't really type them well. I'm you know I'm yeah. 25. I don't. Know I'll, I'll, I I still have. He's invited me to Minsk, and I three years ago I went to Scandinavia, and I said, "Are you going to be at any conferences in Oslo, Stockholm, London, or Dublin, just in case?" Uh, he was going to a neurology conference or something, and he wasn't. But he said, "You know, come to Minsk if if you ever are in the neighborhood." So, and we've corresponded a few times, and I know other people that have been able to get to him. So I'll send him an email. Maybe you could, yeah, maybe you could do a kind of introduction. That makes a huge difference uh, these days. All of us hear from lots of people, and it makes a difference if somebody contacts me and says, "By the way, you're going to hear from." I, I read the email totally differently. Now I can bother you all I want, Darius. I, all I can do is just send you emails constantly saying, hey, what about this? What about this? What about that? Because uh, I was introduced. But no, I appreciate you even giving me the time to be able to talk the very first time you guys did the episode and coming back on to talk again. But where's your guys' links? Gary Schoner, do you want to go first? And then I'm not going to say your last name, but. Uh, my. I'm sorry, my link. Yes, your links to any websites, any books, anything you want to promote. Uh, no, uh, my stuff was a long, long time ago. <laughs> Nothing to do. I'm glad to talk with people and I hear from people. Uh, having worked so long with Hal Weisberg, my name comes up when people are doing research all the time because uh, Harold and I did so many things together. So I hear from people and delighted to chat about the case and also learn what's coming up what's been discovered occasionally i get confronted by something i wrote years ago and i don't remember writing uh investigations i did where there are memos i don't remember and somebody will send it to me and say oh shit now i remember but i you know i i'm not up on it the way gary uh severson is but uh, i i enjoy talking about it and catching up and well like up. like you've said gary if you just do your name with JFK or even just your name, stuff comes up. Yeah, it's pretty easy to find stuff. Yeah. And it's the you same. You can find uh, Tom Tom Bethel's notes on my visit with Garrison yeah. <laughs> or in the National Archives. <laughs> yeah. I discover things like that and it just cracks me up. I didn't know there were such notes. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's See? kind of the same with me, uh, but I have stuff archived at. Mary Farrell's foundation at Baylor and uh, at uh, National uh, North Dakota Public Radio, where I did some interviews back in, I don't know, oh, three, four, five, someplace in there, and uh, archived at Harvey and Lee, John Armstrong's site, and uh, other other places that I I just spaced on now, but I'll I know where your links are. I got the old links from the past episodes, but I'll link all those in the description and 
I appreciate the time you guys gave me to talk on my show. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Blank Podcast.